as we come to the word this morning. Lord Jesus, uh, we've come to this place to meet with you. If we came for any other reason, we missed it. Uh, But Lord, there's still time. We have come to meet with you. So would you speak to us through your word this morning, Lord Jesus? Would you meet with your people? May we learn from one another. May we hear your Holy Spirit whispering into our lives, God. If there's conviction that is needed, then God, bring conviction. If there's encouragement that is needed, God, bring encouragement. May we walk out of this place different this morning because we met with the living God. We trust you. Come and meet with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Let's continue. Uh, We have been working through the book of Mark for the last seven years, it feels like. I don't, it's been a while, uh, but it's so good. It's so rich. Uh, I can't force myself to skip anything, uh, to move quickly through anything, because there's so much depth uh, in this book. And so we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 29, um, a familiar story for a lot of us. Uh, let me read through it, and then we're just going to kind of slow down and, uh, and kind of break the story down. When they came to the disciples, so let me set the stage real quick. If you remember two weeks ago, last week was Easter, we talked about the resurrection two weeks ago. Uh, earlier in Mark chapter 9, we were talking about the mountain of transfiguration, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain, and he was transformed in their presence. Transfigured, your Bible might say. His clothes became like lightning white. Okay, And and the disciples start losing their mind because Jesus was just transformed in their presence. And then two pillars of their like cultural faith, Moses and Elijah, show up and just start chewing the fat with Jesus And these three disciples are losing their stuff because Jesus just changed. Moses and Elijah, we've heard about them since we were infants. Their names are said reverently, and now here they are on the mountain. And then this cloud descends on top of the mountain, and good Jewish boys knew what that meant, the presence of God showing up. And then God the Father speaks through this cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And the disciples are beside themselves. They're saying dumb things like, hey, we should hammer together a tabernacle so you guys have a place to stay and ridiculousness because they, they're beside themselves. They had the mountaintop experience of mountaintop experiences. And now they're coming back down. Think of the stories. They're, think of what they're talking about. What do we even say to the other nine? How, we can't even describe what just happened They have to be on this emotional high and on this crazy, like, he can do anything. It's smooth sailing from here. But when when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw him, him being Jesus, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. 
So they brought him to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. And after he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. A lot going on there. So what we're going to do is I've been challenging you guys with this since we started at the very beginning of the book of Mark. We are going to use our God-given imaginations to put ourselves into the story. What would it have been like to be one of the crowd? What would it have been like to be one of the nine disciples who was kind of in it from the beginning or one of the three coming down from the mountain and to place ourselves there because there is such depth and richness to this story if we learn to slow down and ask the right questions of the scriptures. So let's just begin to do this. Again, Jesus and his three coming down from the mountaintop, like all caps, the mountaintop. They come down and they're like, they're looking around and they see the nine disciples that were left. They see the rest of their group, but there's this crowd around them. And they see the scribes, these kind of religious elite, and they're just arguing and bantering back and forth. There, you, there might be as many as four parties arguing around the scribes, the disciples, the crowd, and maybe even this father and his son joining in. And so it's, it's chaotic when they come down. Obviously, something's wrong. People are shouting at each other. You can imagine the finger pointing that's happening. And so Jesus walks down and says, what are you, why are you arguing? And this father comes up and goes like, look, forget all them. I came looking for you. I need you to heal my son. I asked your disciples and they couldn't do it. What are you going to do, Jesus? But let's, let's take a step back. And let's ask this question. What might the crowd have been arguing about? Let's, let's, again, put ourselves in that situation. It says they're arguing. And when Jesus says, what are you arguing about? Dad doesn't give anybody a chance to answer. He just steps up and goes, forget all of this. Can you help my boy? But what would the crowds have been arguing about? We're, we're guessing at this, and that's okay. What might they have been arguing about? This is where you respond. Okay, maybe they were arguing about why the disciples couldn't do it. Okay, what else? Yeah, the question that's been asked all the way up through Mark so far, who is this man? Maverick? Is he actually God? <laughs> is he actually God? Yeah, I think that would have certainly been in the back of the minds of certainly the religious elite, those scribes that were there, all the claims that Jesus had been making. What else? Shout it out. You don't even have to raise your hand like they did. What were they arguing about? Why were they on the 
Okay. Where's your boss? <laughs> Why are we dealing with you guys? I want to talk to a manager. Maybe. For those of you who are familiar with Exodus, maybe they were like, look, Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days. He's probably dead. We should figure out a plan B. <laughs> Jesus has been up there for like two days now. I guess we're our own disciples now? Like, maybe. I think, when I, when I put myself into the story, what were they arguing about? My guess is that they were arguing about the fact that the disciples were using Jesus' name for authority. The disciples, when they attempted to cast out the demon, most likely would have said, in Jesus' name, get out. And the scribes would not have liked that. Who, like, like they had said, who is this man? How dare you use his name? What authority does he have? We talk about Moses. We talk about Elijah. We talk about Yahweh. How dare you try to use Jesus' name to cast out this demon? And then what do you think happened when it didn't work? Aha! I told you. His name's worthless. I told you it wouldn't work. He has no authority. And the disciples would have defended Jesus' honor. And on and on this whole thing goes. Because who do you think you are to use Jesus' name? Now again, I don't know that. But just looking at context, knowing kind of where the scribes were coming from, and we see in some other places that it was becoming popular to use Jesus' name to claim authority. Actually, just a few verses later, Mark chapter 9, verse 38 and 39, John, the, the apostle, comes running up to Jesus and says, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. It was becoming a thing where people who didn't even know Jesus, people who didn't even follow Jesus, just recognized there's power even just in using his name. People, think about this. These people, they weren't Christians. No one was a Christian yet, but they weren't Jesus followers. They just knew that when I speak his name, spiritual forces shudder. They know and respect Jesus' authority, and so even those that weren't following him were beginning to use his name. If you were one of the scribes or the Pharisees, you saw this as a growing problem, one that needed the hammer dropped on it pretty quickly. And so you can start to imagine that when they saw the disciples do this, it would have got their ire up. And then when they saw them fail, they would have loved it. I knew we were right. So Jesus comes in, says, what's going on? The father brings his son to him and says that he has an evil spirit and it's been tormenting him. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, he replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I don't know if you guys have ever been in Sunday school, but when they talked about Jesus, he had a different attitude than this. This is like an exasperated Jesus. This is a Jesus that, to think of it, this father comes up and goes, Jesus, can, can you please, if the first thing you heard after asking someone for help was you unbelieving generation, how long do I have to put up with you? How, where would your hopes be if you were the dad in this situation? Great, they made him mad. 
Oh, any hopes this man would have had were slowly heading downhill. You unbelieving, this is not the response I heard. He may have even been going, this is not the stories that I heard of. Wasn't this man supposed to be carrying a sheep on his back and just saying peace to everyone? This Jesus is mad. This Jesus is looking at what's going on, and he's frustrated. Let me ask you this question again. Let's put ourselves there. Why is Jesus so harsh with them? Why, why is he so upset? These are, these are harsh words that he gives, almost out of character in a lot of ways. What is it about this situation that has got Jesus so frustrated? Sure. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we talked about how it would have been for the disciples being up on the mountaintop. Uh, imagine if you're Jesus. Like, like David said, he was home. His father was there and speaking. He probably looked more like he does when he's at home in heaven than he did the rest of the time here on earth. And then to come down into this unbelieving situation, that would have been a pretty frustrating thing. It can be weird sometimes to talk about Jesus like he was a man, like he got frustrated, like we get frustrated. But what we find all throughout scripture is Jesus was a man just like us. He was both 100% man and 100% God. The math does not add up, but he's God. It doesn't have to. But he is our high priest who is tempted in every way as we are, who understands our situations. And so we see Jesus, the man, coming down frustrated. Why? Okay, yeah, the fact that they were just sitting there bickering and, and even what was at stake, all of the unbelief there in the situation, certainly the scribes, potentially some of the, the crowd that was gathering, they're probably starting to get in on it, picking sides of going, yeah, he's not who he says he is. And there, there may have been a part of Jesus going, after all I've said and done so far, we're still here? Maybe. What else? Put yourself there. I have a couple of thoughts. Again, all of these, my wanderings. The scripture doesn't say clearly why he was there, and so hold all of this open-handed. But maybe he was talking to the scribes, and he was coming in and going, you unbelieving generation. You should know better. You're, you're the religious leaders of the time, and here you are probably celebrating that the disciples failed. Here you are arguing this thing that Je there has to be a point of Jesus going, how can they still doubt? How have they not seen enough yet? Talking to the scribes, you unbelieving generation. Maybe he was talking to the disciples. What do you mean you couldn't cast this one out? You, you've walked with me for three and a half years now. What do you mean like your faith is still this big? Maybe it's because he's looking into the eyes of this father who just cut through the crowd with his son, going, I just need help. They're arguing and bickering. Half of them are celebrating that my son is still possessed. Maybe Jesus is looking into his eyes and going, 
this man is being ignored by the very people that have been sent to help him. The religious leaders of the time, even my own disciples, are caught up in bickering while this man and his son sit forgotten. Maybe it was because he knows the doubt that exists in the father's heart. Not our father, God, but the father in this story that would be revealed as the story goes on. But Jesus comes down and looks and goes, essentially, why don't you get it yet? How are we still here arguing about does Jesus' name have power or not? So the father presses on. Jesus gives this harsh response, and the father presses in anyway. He continues to plead for his son. So they brought him to him. They brought the son to Jesus And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Think of how terrifying this would be for that father. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, if you can, Everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Not helm, as it says up there. Help my unbelief. This last line that is, of course, typed wrong up there, and I typed it. As it's supposed to say, I think is one of the most beautiful utterances in all of scripture. I think that it is one of the most honest, real, and powerful sayings in all of scripture. I do believe, help my unbelief. I mean, we have to understand, we're going to come back and unpack this part here more in a minute, but we have to understand, Jesus was not trying to just call this man out, you use the wrong words. Oh, you, you didn't say pretty please, you didn't use the magic word. When Jesus says, if you can, he's not just saying, oh, you you tripped up and used the wrong word. He sees doubt in the father's heart and he calls him to faith. And the father's response, again, we're going to unpack it here in a minute, is so beautiful. I do believe, help my unbelief. So Jesus moves on this man's behalf and he casts the spirit out of the boy. It looks as though the boy is dead. Again, think of the roller coaster this father has been on. He sees the disciples and he goes, finally, these guys can help. And the scribes start arguing with them. And it's this, they're almost taking bets on whether it's going to work or not. They try to cast the demon out and it doesn't. His boy is still sick and his heart drops. And then he sees Jesus coming down off the mountain and the hopes raise again. Jesus, will you help me? You unbelieving generation And the pit of his stomach just drops again. And then Jesus casts the demon out and the hopes rise. And then the boy falls as if he's dead. This is the worst part yet for the father. And then Jesus reaches out, grabs the boy by the hand, and he rises up. And the father takes his son home whole and healed. Jesus leaves with his disciples and they try to figure out what just happened. After he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? 
And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Interesting question. How come Jesus didn't pray and fast then? So he gets to break the rules? Nope. Here's the thing. God doesn't break his own rules. I will tell you that. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll come back to this piece. Jesus didn't pray and fast. And there's a reason behind it, an important one. But I want to talk real quick. Do you see how and fasting is in brackets? This is just a little side note, uh, a little like Bible history that will help you as you read through the scriptures. And we're actually going to see it a couple times today. Whenever you see something that's in brackets, what that is, is the people who are translating the Bible from ancient Hebrew in the Old Testament, ancient Greek in the New Testament, they're telling you, we have a question about this word. I will trust anyone who tells on themselves, just so you know. When people talk about how do we know that like what Jesus said is what we actually have, what was originally written is what we actually have printed here today, there's an incredible process that takes place. And when you see things like this in brackets, or sometimes you'll see it in your footnotes, what they're saying is, look, we found some manuscripts that have prayer and fasting and some that just have prayer. And they're basically, they're, they're putting up a red flag and going, hold the second part, the end fasting, open-handed. It may have been part of the original that kind of got lost in translation, or it might not have been there at the beginning and a scribe or someone may have added it by accident. Either way, be careful. I will always trust someone that tells on themselves. And the scripture tells on itself. When people aren't sure, when the people who are translating it, they hold it in such high regard, when they're not sure, was this in the original or not, they make it very clear. We're going to see, that actually, most of the last chapter of the book of Mark is in brackets. So we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this again. But I just want to call that out. When you see something in brackets, that simply means the people translating going, we don't know. It was in some of the manuscripts we found and it wasn't in some others. Just take it with a grain of salt. So we know that Jesus said this kind comes out only by prayer and potentially and fasting. So time in. We'll come back into, our, into the story here in Mark. I truly believe that, that this story is so foundational to what it means to follow Jesus. I think there's two foundational principles found in this story that if we miss we're unable to grow and to mature. If we're going to grow and move forward, we have to grasp these two foundational principles that are in play in this story. They are foundational to what it means to follow Jesus. The first one is this. Jesus always accepts an earnest mustard seed of faith. I'm, I'm going to read the story again, but from Matthew's perspective. Matthew, who was there from the very beginning, he didn't go up on the mountain so he was there from the time the father brought the boy through the whole thing, and this is his eyewitness account. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, talking to Jesus, they kind of skipped straight past the fighting. Have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffers severely. He often falls into the fire and often into water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and rebellious generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, 
he told them, for I assure you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And again, in brackets, however, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So that piece in brackets there, they, maybe it was there and got left off at some point. Maybe at some point in time, a scribe like who was real familiar with the book of Mark added that piece in. We don't know. When you put the two together, you get a much fuller picture. It's like talking to one eyewitness about an event that happened. You're going to get an idea of what happened. But then when you talk to a second and a third and a fourth, the picture really fills itself out. And that's the beauty of the Gospels, is we have these multiple eyewitnesses account that corroborate each other and really fill the story out. Jesus always accepts our earnest mustard seed of faith. He says, look, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest known seed at the time, if you have like the speck of sand, if you have faith that big, you can say to the mountain, move, and it will be moved. Jesus is going, I will use even the smallest amount of faith. I will move mountains with it. I got ahead of myself. Let's go back to the father and the thing that he said. Many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said, if you can. Everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Again, Jesus wasn't being mean to this father because he is not an incantation where you had to use just the right words and you got them out of order or you said it wrong and Jesus was slapping his hand. Jesus was trying to call out faith. The father came with an if statement. Look, they've been arguing all day long. Your disciples failed. I don't even know if you can. But if there's anything you can do, have compassion and help us. And Jesus says, if? Jesus sees doubt and faith warring in the heart of this father, and he puts him in a spot where he says, you have to choose. Is it going to be doubt or is it going to be faith? Everything is possible for the one who believes. The father chooses faith, but he does it in the most beautifully honest way. I do believe. Now help me in my unbelief. I have this much. I believe it in my head, my heart, it's trailing behind. I do believe. I want to believe. I think you can. That's why I'm here. Will you help? Will you take my little bit of faith and will you make it enough? Will you take this thing that I know is true in my head and will you help it penetrate my heart? I do believe. Please help me in my unbelief. The father recognized his lack of faith, and he offered what he had and trusted Jesus for the rest. Have you ever been in this situation? Maybe you're reading through scripture. Maybe you're talking with someone, and you realize God is calling me to this standard. God is calling me to this level of obedience. If I'm honest, I've only got this much in me. The most beautiful, honest prayer is to go, Jesus, I see where you're calling me, and I recognize where I am. And the two are worlds apart. I, I believe you can help me. Will you make it enough? Will you fill in the gap between where I am and where I need to be, between the amount of faith I have and the amount of faith necessary to see you move a mountain? And Jesus will always use that earnest, that open, 
honest mustard seed of faith, he will move mountains with it. We have to learn to live this way, recognizing where our faith falls short and crying out to Jesus to make up the difference. I think about a story where Jesus uh, is in front of the temple at one point, and they're watching. They, uh, giving tithes and offerings back then was an incredibly public thing. They actually had these huge public coffers that people would line up and come and dump in whatever they had, and it was this very public event. And Jesus is watching sometimes, and he goes, see that there's a Pharisee that just gave 10% of everything. Like he had a wheelbarrow full of stuff that he was bringing up and dumping in. And then he sees this woman who comes up with two copper minas, two pennies, and puts them in. And Jesus says, that woman gave everything she has. And in fact, she's given more than all the rest. Because she said, look, this is all I have to live on, but I trust you with it, Jesus. Will you make it enough? And in that same way, this is what the father does. I do believe that you can help my son, but there's so much doubt in my heart. I believe, but will you help me in my unbelief? Jesus will always use the earnest mustard seed of faith. Here's the second principle. Jesus calls our mustard seeds to grow. Back to Matthew and his telling of this story. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For I assure you, if you had faith, even the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing is impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out but by prayer and fasting. Mark says it this way again, just trying to keep it fresh. After he went to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So again, coming back, Jesus didn't pray or fast. And not because he just doesn't need the rules. He doesn't tell them, here's the only way to do it, unless you're me. That's not how Jesus rolled. Part of why Jesus was here was to model for us how to live in faith. And so if he starts breaking the rules because he's God and he can, that whole thing kind of breaks down pretty quick. Here's the thing. Prayer and fasting are tools that grow our faith. There are times when we come up against a spiritual battle. There are times when we come up against a battle with sin in our own hearts and our faith isn't sufficient. And Jesus doesn't just kind of go, eh, well, always okay. There's a reason why I said an earnest mustard seed of faith. When this is honestly all that I have, here's the problem with many of us and I believe with his disciples at the time. We come with our mustard seed, Jesus uses it, and then we sit down. Thanks, Jesus. I'll be here if you need anything else. The disciples had been with him for three and a half years. I wonder if he wasn't going, your faith should be bigger. With everything you've seen, with everything you've done, your faith should be bigger than it is right now. And he wasn't slapping them on the hands with it. He was telling them, and here is how you grow your faith. Through prayer and fasting. Those are faith-building tools. Jesus says this earlier in Mark, in chapter 4, and he said to them, how can we illustrate the kingdom of God, or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown in the soil is smaller than all the other seeds on the ground, and when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the vegetables and produces large branches so that birds of the sky can rest in its shade. 
It starts with a mustard seed of faith. And Jesus says, if that's truly where you are, I will use that. I will make it enough. But for those of you resting on what was a mustard seed a year ago, he says, the whole point of the kingdom is that mustard seed grows and becomes bigger than anyone could have imagined when they saw where it started. Is your mustard seed growing? Or are you resting on yesterday's faith? The two principles, they can kind of sound paradoxical. They can sound like both can't be true at the same time. Jesus will use that that honest mustard seed of faith, but at the same time, he expects the seed to grow. But this is what we see at play here. The father comes with all he has and says, Jesus, make it enough. Jesus looks at the disciples and goes, the reason you couldn't do it is because your faith isn't big enough. You needed to pray and fast. There are many times when our faith is not up to the task. We don't see victory in spiritual battles because we aren't willing to put in the work. Our faith isn't up to the task and we remain satisfied with where we are instead of putting in the hard work to see our faith grow. Think of, what, think of if the story went this way. The father brings his son to the disciples. They try to cast the demon out in Jesus' name. It doesn't go. They tried and they failed. What if instead they went, boys, let's gather up. Let's spend some time in prayer. Let's spend some time remembering who God is and who we are. Remembering who Jesus is. And remember, we're his followers. He's given us authority. What if they would have spent time fasting together? The whole point of fasting is remembering, Lord, I need you more than I need whatever it is that I'm fasting. In doing that, it aligns our hearts with him and our faith grows through these experiences. What if they would have gathered up, the nine of them, spent time in prayer and fasting and went, hey dad, come back with your boy tomorrow. We're trying again. Our faith wasn't up to mustard, so we gotta, we gotta go back to the drawing board, come back tomorrow. And they spent that time devoting themselves to the Lord. Would their belief have been stronger had they done that? Would their faith have had a surer foundation had they done that? The answer is yes. Then the the father comes back, and I don't know this, at that point in time, in Jesus' name, spirit, be gone. And does the boy see healing? Because they saw this as, again, not smacking their hands, oh, our faith is too small. We have some work to do. This is a bigger battle than we were prepared for. Let's go get ready by prayer and by fasting. There are certain battles that we aren't strong enough to fight yet. That's just the reality of it. Your faith is at a four and it needs to be at a six to see victory. Are you willing to put in the work? Or are you, what we try to do is we go, Jesus, you do it. I'm at a four, you do the rest. Make it a six, just... Give me victory while I kind of sit in some comfort. Or are we willing to do the work to build up our faith? The Father's statement to Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief, is actually a beautiful faith-building prayer. Jesus, I recognize that my faith isn't enough. Will you help me in my unbelief? Even that would have built the Father's faith Just by giving voice to the reality of his situation, my faith is not enough. Jesus, I need your help. That would have been a faith-building experience, let alone then when he sees Jesus move. Guess who had the biggest faith out of anyone in the room right after the sun got up? 
the Father. He can do anything. <laughs> Maybe the Son. Yeah, yeah. They would have had the greatest faith out of anyone there because they had just experienced Jesus moving in power and their faith was built and it all stands on the shoulders of Jesus, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Will you help me to get where I need to be to see victory? He recognizes that he and his sufficiency are not enough. Jesus, I need you to come and do your work. Lead me. So let me ask you this question. We'll, we'll end with this. Again, let's learn from each other here. What are the tools that God has given us to build our faith? What are the tools that you use to deepen your faith? Prayer and fasting, pretty obvious from the story. But let me tell you, those are not the only tools that God has given us to build our faith. What else? <laughs> How do you argue when someone just yells out, Bible? <laughs> what do you mean by that, Christina? <laughs> okay. Let me, let me ask you this question, because it's important. Does just reading the Bible build your faith? Crack it open. Read it. Maybe you set a timer, 15 minutes a day, one chapter a day, whatever. Does just reading the Bible build your faith? Not necessarily. It, it, here's, here's the thing. Can your faith grow without reading the Bible? No, 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 no. It can't. But I've said this before. There are atheists in the world who know the Bible far better than any of us. They have spent more time in it. They have studied it to know like where it came from and all this and that, to poke as many holes as possible, and their faith is tiny. It's non-existent. But they've spent the time. When we meet with God through his word, when we say, God, will you speak to me through your word? Will you teach me through your word? Then his word comes to life, or comes to life, and our faith is deepened. But it's not just a, a clock in, clock out. I spent some time, therefore my faith has to be deeper. When we seek God through his word, we will find him and our faith will be deepened. Maverick? It's not just reading the Bible, but it's praying and receiving, which out of the mouth of babes, let that one go deep. There's something there. What else? What other tools do we have? Siblings in Christ. Siblings in Christ. How do siblings help build our faith? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Allowing other people to speak faith into your life, to encourage you, to tell you their stories, to tell you, hey, here's what I've been learning. And actually, I just heard this guy stand up there and tell us that if your faith isn't enough, there's some tools we could use to deepen it. Let me pray with you. Let me fast with you. Let's read the scriptures together. Let me encourage you with the scriptures. Our faith will always grow faster together than it ever will alone. What else? I think a tool that we don't really choose to use, but it's inevitable um, is pain mm -hmm. um, and deeper dependence on God through that. Sure. Yeah, we don't like that one. Um, but the tool of pain is what she said. Again, Look at the story here. Look at the ups and downs the father had been through. 
and how Jesus used those to build his faith, to get him to the point where he goes, look, this is, this is all I've got. I don't have anything else. I believe, help me in my unbelief. If the father hadn't been in such deep pain for his son, would he have gotten to that point, to crying out to Jesus, to recognizing where he is and having the opportunity to see his faith expanded? God even uses the painful things in life as tools, as opportunities to deepen our faith. Again, I, I, love, I love that Jesus didn't, again, smack the disciples' hand. They failed. They saw him do it. And they didn't just say, he's Jesus. He can do things we can't. Because Jesus has already made promises to them. One day, you're going to do even greater things than you've seen me do. They would have taken that to heart. And so they came and they asked their teacher, how come we couldn't do it? How, why did we fall flat on our face, Jesus? And he said, because your faith is too small. You needed to pray and to fast. You needed to build your faith up. And because of their failure, guess who else came out of this story with even greater faith? The disciples. And now they had more tools in their pockets, not because Jesus just went, hey, I played the God card. He said, you can do these same things if you'll put in the work to grow your faith. And they only experienced that because they first fell flat on their face. If everything would have just gone awesomely until the day after Jesus rose to, and went to heaven, and now they're there going, we've never failed before. What's happening? They would have been in a rough spot. But Jesus allowed them to fail and walked with them through it to build their faith. What else? What other tools? Yeah. 100%. Yes. Remembering what God has already done in your life. How many of you in here naturally are journalers? Is there a single man with their hand up, or is it all women? That's, oh, there we go, Maverick. Good job. Mark Epperson is a huge journaler. Uh, let me tell you, there, I am I'm horrible at it. Terrible, terrible, terrible. But there is something to it. There is power in it. Especially if you then have, again, something I'm terrible at, to go back and read through some of your old journals and to see the ways that God has moved, that God has answered promises in the past, that we've forgotten about because just life gets busy, but to take time and actually remember how God has already moved will build your faith. That tree begins to grow even more because if he did it then, he can do it now. And sometimes we just need that reminder. What else? Even just to look back at, at today and go, where have I seen Jesus moving already today is going to build your faith. Worship is a big one for me. In those times when I'm just going, man, I, I just don't know. I, I have, I'm battling faith and doubt to just spend time in worship, which honestly, I put worship right in there with, with prayer because it's focusing my heart on him, yeah. focusing my mind on him. 
And we don't, see, we don't sing things like, maybe one day Jesus can come through, maybe. We sing things like, oh, praise the one who paid my debt. He's already done it. He's fulfilled it. And the more time I spend focusing on that, the deeper my faith becomes. That is a tool that we have in our arsenal. And worship doesn't just mean singing, but it certainly can. Anything else? What other tools? Yeah, yeah. How many times do we miss opportunities for our faith to grow because we just refuse to serve? Because we're too busy. I'm too focused on me. I don't like how that feels. I don't want to give that up. And are we missing opportunities for our faith to be built up? Because as we serve one another, we see the spirit moving in new and fresh ways. We, we start to have conversations about what God has done in your life. And then I'm telling you stories about what God has done in my life. And both of us are edified. An, an old Christian word, which means built up together. Our faith grows because we serve one another. We love one another, as the scriptures say. Maverick? Yeah. Yeah. He's eight, and he gets it. Uh, One of the greatest tools that we have at our disposal that is one of the hardest tools to use is repentance and confession. What he said was releasing your anger and your frustration so that it doesn't take control. When you're in those times, when you've just chosen sin, guess what? Faith is pretty low. But when you choose obedience and you come in repentance and you confess your sin one to another, you receive forgiveness, you extend forgiveness, your faith will grow. Many of us like to try to keep secrets and grow faith at the same time, and it doesn't happen. It does not work. Holding on to sin, and we've talked about this a little bit with confession already, holding on to sin, or communion, excuse me, and growing your faith cannot both happen at the same time. Because it is the Father who actually grows our faith, who causes that seed to sprout and grow life. And when we choose to hold on to sin, we hold the Father at arm's length. And so until we're willing to repent, to set that sin down and turn back to him. Acts 3.19 says, repent then and turn to God that times of refreshing may flow from him. We want the growth, but without the confession and repentance, and you can't have both. That is one of the greatest tools in our arsenal that is one of the hardest to use because it feels like death. What else? Anything else? Yeah, there, um, I'm going to speak out of turn a little bit because I wasn't there, but I heard about at the IF gathering that uh, the women had a couple weekends ago, um, one of the speakers w- was talking about the importance of speaking scripture to themselves. Uh, to, there, there's a, a song out there that says, I will preach the gospel to myself. 
And that idea of, again, that doesn't just mean like, I just keep telling myself, you're awesome. You can do anything. But the promises of God, I keep in front of me. Again, it's not just I read it and set it down and walked away. I'm intentionally putting them in front of myself, reminding myself of them. You are a child of God. God is not mad at you waiting to drop the hammer. He's waiting with arms wide open to love you. I need to hear that regularly. And guess what? I can't depend on you guys to tell me that. It's nice when you do, but I'm way more broken than you know. And so I have to train myself to speak the truths of Scripture to myself, to remind myself in those low-faith days wait, 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 this is not about me. He causes my faith to grow if I just focus my eyes on him. Shirley read a couple passages to to start the service that I love. Galatians 2.20 is one of my favorite passages, but then over in Colossians where it says, my life is hidden in Christ. Like I am dead and my life is hidden in Christ. And when he is revealed, my life is revealed. Like to just go, it is all about you Anything worth having, you bring to the party, and I, am, I get to be with you. That will build your faith. Anything else? Somebody else started to talk over here. And like Shelton had said, and there's times when you need to remind yourself of that because, Lord, I don't know how we got here. It's a new bad situation, but like, wait, if, if you moved then, you can still move now. And, and Andy, I'm sorry that she said, you know, a normal person probably would have died, but he's abnormal. Like, I don't think she meant anything by it, if you were wondering. Go ahead, Jamie. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. We cannot be disobedient and faithful at the same time. Faith or obedience underlines all of this. If we don't, if we don't walk in obedience, we will not walk in faith. Go ahead, Kayla. What do you mean by humility? I concur. What's your C.S. Lewis quote, Shirley? Or what's C.S. Lewis's quote? Either way. Uh, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. 
Uh, another definition of humility is seeing yourself in proper perspective with God. Recognizing, oh, this is about your thing, not my thing. This is about what you're doing, not what I want. And when we choose that humility, our faith will grow because we will see God move in power. And your faith can't not grow when you see God move that way. Any others? Yeah, the, the siblings in Christ part, the being encouraged by one another, the hearing other people's stories and learning and growing in that way doesn't just mean face-to-face in front of you over coffee. Uh, there are many books uh, that have been written for, for centuries now that have opportunity to build our faith because it's people telling their stories of what God has done. And again, when we can commune with them and go, he is amazing. And if he could do that in your situation, what could he do in mine? And faith is built. I'm going to ask Bree uh, and Kim to come up as we prepare to close the service. And uh, if you guys would just join me in praying. And, and let, me, let me just close by saying this. That list of things that deepen our faith, faith we scratch the surface. And there's going to be so much room for you and Jesus, like on an individual level, it's going to look different than it does for me. Some of you need to go for a walk. And there's just something about being out in nature. Some of you need to find a quiet place, that prayer closet idea where there's no distractions and you just need to sit with Jesus. It's going to be personalized and that's the beauty of it. Jesus, will you teach me between you and me what what speaks to me, what grows my faith? Because some things we're going to try and you're going to go, nope, that didn't do anything. Cool, works for them, doesn't need to work for you. Try something different. There's a variety of tools. The question is, are we going to put in the work? Are we going to allow our faith to grow? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I do not doubt that you are waiting to do your part, to grow the mustard seed of faith. I think you were overjoyed at the Father's statement, I believe, help my unbelief the rawness and honesty of it, I truly believe moved you to work on his behalf. God, may we first start with acknowledging where we are. Lord, this is where my faith is. Whether whether it should be greater or not, I don't know, but this is where it is. Will you help me in my unbelief? And then will we use the tools you've given us, God, to build our faith, to see greater power, to see greater kingdom movement, to see greater victory over sin. God, greater even supernatural working in the lives of those that believe and in the lives of those that don't but are being called in. May we use the tools you've given us to walk in the faith you're calling us to, that your kingdom might be lived out through us. Do what only you can do, Jesus, and help us to walk in obedience where you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.